It's good to be with you all this morning. Um, if you are a guest with us, my name is Garrison, and I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas State, and we're so glad that you are here this morning. Um, if you want to uh, open your Bibles to Acts 16.11, put your thumb there, and then also turn over to Romans 8.30, uh, Romans 8.30. So we're going to just look at uh, those two texts. We're going to read those two texts here in a few moments. Uh, we're in a, a series, a uh, sermon series called The Unbreakable Chain of Salvation. And what we're trying to do is we're, we're just trying to answer the, the question, what, what is salvation? Uh, when we talk about salvation, we say that God saves an individual, uh, what are we talking about? Um, Last week, we began this series by looking at uh, predestination, going all the way into eternity past to start with the, the subject of predestination, that God predestined us uh, for salvation in Christ. This took place in eternity past. Uh, but then this morning, we're moving right up to uh, the moment wherein a person begins to follow Jesus. Um, and uh, this, uh, if you want to go to the next slide here, that moment includes the second link, the third, fourth, fifth link. Um, those are all kind of taking place simultaneously in a moment. You know, of course, Jesus secured our salvation 2,000 years ago. He accomplished our salvation 2,000 years ago on a cross, but now we're talking about that moment wherein that salvation that Jesus accomplished is applied to the life of the individual believer. Um, and so we're looking at uh, the second link this morning, uh, but we should also know that the third, fourth, and fifth links happen at that very same moment. They, they don't take place in chronological order. The reason that we look at them in this order is because they're, they kind of follow this logical order, not chronological order, but a logical order here. Um, and so we're going to start this morning with uh, the second link, effectually called and regenerated. And I know there's some big words in there, but we're going to define those, so don't uh, let that scare you off. Um, but we're, again, just wanting to ask the question and answer the question, what does it mean when we're saved? When we say that someone is saved as an individual, what are we talking about? And part of what we mean when we're talking about the salvation of an individual is to say that they're effectually called and regenerated. And so, let's look at Acts 16, 11 through 15. If you want to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, uh, and then we'll flip over to Romans 8, look at verse 30. Read these. Let's read these with reverence and joy. We believe that this is the word of our God. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Romans 8.30 And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we, we ask that, just as you did with Lydia, that you would open our hearts to pay attention to what your word says now. And we pray that um, your word would be what people hear, that they would hear a, a better sermon than the one I'm about to preach, that they would hear your voice calling them and communicating to them, giving them faith, strengthening their faith, so that we and all those whom you have called might be conformed to the image of your precious Son, Christ our Lord. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Um, Weekend at Bernie's. Has anyone... Has anyone ever seen Weekend at Bernie's? There it is. Um, Has anyone, seriously, has anyone ever seen this? All right, so everyone just mark the people who raise their hands and judge them. It's a horrible movie. Um, Yeah, it's, I I wouldn't suggest you waste your time watching it if if you've uh, not seen it, but I will tell you a little bit about it now. So uh, Weekend at Bernie's, it tells a story about these two kind of low-level employees at an insurance firm, and uh, their names are Larry and Richard, and, and uh, they discover some sort of insurance fraud, and their boss, Bernie, uh, sort of he invites them to his beach house for the weekend as a, you know, what they think is a reward for their quality of work, uh, which of course is not true. He's got ties to the mob, and uh, this insurance fraud was his doing, and, and so he's inviting them over to the house to have them killed by the mob. However, before they arrive, with, through his ties with the mob, Bernie is actually killed. And so uh, Larry and Richard, they arrive to the beach house, they find Bernie there deceased. And, and so out of a desire to still enjoy uh, the house that uh, he invited them to and enjoy this, this great big party that Bernie throws every weekend at his beach house. They actually dress Bernie up and they put sunglasses on him and they, they uh, parade him around the house as if he's actually alive. And, and through all the, it's a comedy, which is super weird, uh, but it, through all this, the hijinks and these antics of, of Richard and, and Larry throughout the weekend, everyone is just enjoying themselves far too much to even notice that Bernie is in fact dead. I know, it's like super weird and morbid and ghastly. It's a it's very strange movie. That's Weekend at Bernie's. But I share that in hopes to, to illustrate to you a reality far more morbid and ghastly than even the thought of dressing up a human corpse and parading it around as if the person is actually alive. And that is the reality that Scripture says that what we see in Weekend at Bernie's is actually a spiritual reality for all of humanity apart from Jesus Christ. Yes, we we walk around and we interact with people and we seem like we're alive and we might even be enjoying ourselves far too much to even notice, but apart from Jesus Christ, we are all dead men and women walking. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, we just read it a little bit earlier, it describes us before the event of conversion in this way. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived according to the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Yes, you see, 
Everyone you see and interact with apart from Jesus Christ is dead in trespasses and sins. Christian, before you became a Christian, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Spiritually dead. Dead to the things of God. Dead to his kingdom. Dead to his gospel. Dead to his commands. All of us are born this way and all of us will die this way apart from a miraculous work of Jesus Christ in our lives. We're all apart from Jesus Christ, in our trespasses and sins, like zombies, like Bernie, walking around without any spiritual life at all. And so what's needed? What's needed? What's needed is spiritual resurrection. We need to be made spiritually alive to God and to the things of God. In other words, we need to be called and regenerated. And there's actually nothing we can humanly do to accomplish this, to bring it about in ourselves. I mean, dead means dead, right? Yeah, I've heard some people sometimes describe Christian, uh, the Christian view of salvation as a, as a dance. God initiates, but we need to follow his lead. There's a give and a take. There must be cooperation. There must be uh, synergism. Sure, you can dress a corpse up, but really, in all reality, cadavers don't dance, Dead means dead. You can drag someone around like Bernie, but dead means dead. That doesn't change the fact that apart from the calling and regenerating grace of God, we are dead. And so in order to actually follow God's lead, in, the, in order to place our faith and trust in him for salvation as he's offered in the gospel, there must be spiritual resurrection in the soul of the individual. There must be calling and regeneration. And this is, this is a massive implications for us in our lives as Christians and as our mission as, as Christians and as a church. And so we need to explore and define and, and dive into the second link here, calling and regeneration. So look with me at this big idea. By a sovereign grace, God calls and regenerates his people. By a sovereign grace, God calls and regenerates his people. And we're taking calling and regeneration as a single link. Remember that, and we'll see why here as we dig into this. But this is a single link. And so we're going to explore this by looking at two points. First, God effectually calls, and second, God affects regeneration. So first, God effectually calls. And one of the most clear aspects of Christianity, one of the, one of the clearest aspects of, of Christianity shown to us in the book of Acts, is the fact that Christianity is a go-and-tell kind of religion. Christianity is by nature a, a missionary religion. It is by nature a religion which seeks to go out into the world and to make known the good news of Jesus Christ. It seeks to go out and proclaim the announcement that Jesus Christ has lived the life that we should have lived. And as the, the perfect man, he died the death that we sinners deserve to die in our place so that our sin can be taken away and our guilt atoned for. And he rose again on the third day and will one day make all things new. That's the good news of the gospel. God has achieved our full salvation in Christ. And now the world needs to hear that good news. We need to get that out to the world. As Paul says in, in Romans 10, 14 to 15, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? We have to get this word out. And the kind of narrative arc of, of the book of Acts is really the, the storyline of that word, that gospel getting out initially. And the story that we find in Acts 16, 11 through 15 is one such example 
of that gospel, that word, going out into the world and bearing fruit. The Apostle Paul and the evangelist Luke, Luke is the author of Acts, and, and he's obviously present in the story because he starts this, uh, this narrative out with saying, and we sailed from such and such place to go to Samothrace and all that. So Luke is with the Apostle Paul, they're together, and they're traveling from place to place to announce the gospel and start new churches. In, in our particular text, they come to a great and important city called Philippi. And apparently, there is a very small community of Jewish worshipers there. Apparently, they're too small to even have a synagogue built. But they're large enough to gather on the Sabbath. And so, uh, there's a, a group of women that gather there on the Sabbath for prayer. They gather by the river so that they can do their kind of ceremonial washings before gathering. And uh, so, Luke and Paul go there on the Sabbath to, to preach the gospel to a group of women that gathered there. Now, among this group of women is a woman named Lydia. And Lydia was not ethnically Jewish. She was a Gentile, but she was also called a God-fearer. A God-fearer was a, a Gentile who, prior to the coming of Jesus Christ, worshiped and prayed to Yahweh according to Jewish customs. And she was evidently very wealthy. She was a seller of purple goods, which would have been a racket at the time. And she was from the city of Thyatira, um, which was in the district called Lydia. Uh, so there's probably something there with her name, Lydia, having to do with the place that she was from. And so Paul preached the, the gospel to this group of women, among whom Lydia was present. And she listened, but listen to what, look at what the latter half of verse 14 says. It says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. In other words, the, the Lord opened her heart to truly hear, to understand, to believe, to trust the gospel of Jesus Christ as it was preached by the Apostle Paul. She was called into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. She was called for those whom, for whom God predestined. He also called. Lydia was called. And now let's pay attention here. Notice in, in, in Romans 8.30, who's the subject of the verb called? The verb called? God is the subject of the word called the verb called. So let's pay attention here. Luke uses this in the very same way. Look, he attributes Lydia's call to a sovereign act of the living God. And understand, this is not an isolated text in the book of Acts that, that attests to the, 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 the sovereignty of God and the, and the calling of his people. We, we see in Acts 13, 48, when the apostle Paul preached the gospel in Antioch, it says that as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. In Acts 11, after a Gentile named Cornelius was converted under the preaching of the Apostle Peter, Peter reiterates that story to the pastors in Jerusalem, and it says that they glorified God, saying then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Who is it that grants repentance? Who is it that appoints to eternal life and causes those appointed to believe? Who is it that opens the heart to pay attention to the gospel? It's God. It's God, and it must be God. Again, apart from Christ, we're dead in trespasses and sins. Apart from Christ, we're not able to hear and understand and believe and trust the word of God. If you look at, at 1 Corinthians 2.14, it says that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Maybe you've experienced this, where, where you've been trying to share the gospel with, with a loved one, with a neighbor, with a co-worker, with a, a child, a, a spouse, someone. You've been trying to share the truth of the gospel with them, and it's, it's, it's met with just utter misunderstanding, utter unbelief, no comprehension. 
Right? I've, I've actually had this conversation with many Christians throughout my life who have, who have said before, now, I grew up in the church, but I wasn't converted until later in life until I finally heard the gospel. And sometimes that, that might be very possible. It might be very possible. There are some churches that assume the gospel and thus don't preach it. There are some churches that deny the gospel and thus don't preach it. But it's also entirely possible that if you grew up in church, you heard the gospel on several, maybe many occasions throughout your life, but you never really heard it. And why did, why have you, why did you not hear it? Why do people sometimes just not hear the gospel? Why can someone hear the gospel but not really hear it? The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are, they're folly to him. They're not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. They need, we need, we all need the Lord to open our hearts to pay attention to the gospel. We all need the Spirit of God to effectually call us. We all need to hear the gospel, but we need more than to just hear the gospel, we need spiritual ears to really hear it. We need renewed hearts to really receive it. And so theologians have often distinguished between what they call the general call of the gospel and the effectual call of the gospel. If you want to go to the next slide there, the general call of the gospel and the effectual call of the gospel. The general call of the gospel is just the gospel preached to any and all people. The general call is just the indiscriminate call of the gospel given to anyone who might listen. And apparently, in Acts 16, 11 through 15, Lydia was not the only woman present. There was a group of women there, and the general call of the gospel went out to all who were present. However, the general call went out, and as that went out, the God effectually called Lydia to himself. The effectual call is when the general call actually produces the fruit of faith and repentance in the hearer. Sometimes the general call of the gospel goes out and it falls on deaf ears and hard hearts. But sometimes the general call of the gospel goes out and it becomes effectual as it produces new life in Christ. And actually, post-Bible theologians were not the ones who came up with this distinction. This distinction actually comes back to, to Jesus, really. Jesus is the one who makes this distinction. If you look at Matthew twenty-two fourteen, 14, Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, many are generally called. Many will receive the general call of the gospel. Many will hear evangelistic presentations from their Christian friends and neighbors. Many will, will listen to the gospel heralded, heralded from, from pulpits all over the world on Sunday mornings. Many will drive by billboards on the highway that say John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Many will receive that general call. But few are chosen. Few are effectually called. Few are predestined so that they are effectually called. And you see, that's what Paul is talking about in Romans 8.30, those whom God predestined, those whom God chose, he also effectually called. God called, th those few who are chosen, who are predestined for salvation in eternity past, are effectually called. They are called to belong to Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Romans 1.6. As, as 1 Peter 2.9 says, they are called out of darkness into marvelous light, like the lights get turned on. Many are generally called, but few are chosen, few are predestined to receive the effectual call. And of course, we have to ask the question then, what is it that makes the difference between someone receiving the general call versus someone receiving the effectual call 
of the gospel? Is it, is it some sort of innate goodness or virtue in the individual that, that causes them to respond to the gospel? Is there something good in the person? No. We're all dead in trespasses and sins. There is level ground here when it comes to our state prior to life in Christ. There's nothing but level ground. We are all born, dead, deaf, blind to God and the things of God. So what makes the call of the gospel effectual? What makes the call of the gospel effectual is the power of God present to draw sinners to repentance. It is God who effectually calls. One of my favorite verses that, that testifies to this is Ephesians 2.16. This very strange text. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. And he says something astounding and initially very confusing. He tells them, that Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off. Jesus came to you, Ephesians, and preached peace to, to, to you who are far off. Now, I don't know if you know this. Jesus never stepped foot in Ephesus. Jesus never physically stepped foot in Ephesus. But if you look at Acts 19, you see that Paul is actually the one who evangelized the city of Ephesus. And yet Paul is here saying to these Ephesian Christians that Jesus is the one who came to Ephesus and preached to them. You see here, the effectual call takes place when God's people share the gospel, just like Paul shared the gospel in Ephesus, but somehow, mysteriously, the voice of the living God speaks through his people to irresistibly draw and summon his elect to salvation. Jesus teaches this, this very thing when he says, John 6, 43, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. They must hear the gospel. We must hear the gospel, yes. But the sovereign grace of God must also be present to effectually call and draw his people to salvation. As so I was thinking of how to illustrate this, I, I, I thought of the Lion King. Uh, the Lion King. It's quite different from Weekend at Bernie's. Um, but uh, the... There's this wonderful scene where um, Simba and Nala, they kind of wander into the graveyard, to the shadowy area. And the, the hyenas are, they live there. And, and the hyenas, three hyenas, I think one of them is Whoopi Goldberg, actually. And uh, this is so weird. Uh, and they, you know, they kind of show up and they say, here, kitty, 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 kitty. And, and, and they're kind of mocking and taunting Simba and Nala. And, and they're circling them. And the implication is that they're going to kill these little kittens and eat them. Um, and so little Simba recognizes the, the danger of the situation. He works up his courage and, they, and he begins to roar at them. Rawr. And they're just so pathetic, just pathetic little roars. He's a little cub. He's a little, he's a little kitty cat. And so his, his roars are small and pathetic and they're not bringing about the intended effect of scaring these hyenas off. And the hyenas just laugh at Simba and they make fun of him and make fun of his pathetic little roars. And yet, at one point, Simba takes a big, deep breath. He goes, and he takes a big, deep breath and he, he releases and he's trying to release this enormous roar, but it's still just a teeny little roar. But at that very same moment that he lets out his teeny little roar, his father, King Mufasa, actually comes up from behind him and roars this great big line of a roar, and it brings about this intended effect of frightening and terrifying these hyenas. That's a picture of the effectual call. Of course, the effectual call produces the opposite effect of Mufasa's roar. It doesn't scare people off. But the effectual call is God's roar through his, the, the tiny little roars of his people, which draws and saves and converts his chosen people. Yes, like Simba, 
We call, we roar, we open our mouths and announce the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We give the general call, but it is God who saves and converts and effectually draws. That's the effectual call. But then how is the effectual call then made effectual? What makes it effectual? Well, what makes the effectual call effectual is when the Holy Spirit brings about the new birth through it. I mentioned this last week. This is, again, this is one link. This one link. The effectual call and the new birth. They're not two separate links. They're one link. The new birth is brought about through the effectual call, and it's through the effectual call that the new birth comes about. And so as the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1.23, we are born again through the word of God, through the preaching of the gospel by God's people. We are born again through that word, through the call of the gospel. And so we need... We need to understand something of the new birth to understand the effectual call, which brings us next to God affects regeneration, the claim that God affects regeneration. Now, I know that's a big word. That's a big word. But it's also a word in the Bible. So as people of the book, we need to know what the word is. And um, it really is just a big fancy word that, that means uh, rebirth, being born again, the new birth. Generation means, you know, being born Re is just the, the word that means, uh, the part of the word that means again. And uh, this word is used twice in the New Testament. It's used um, once in Matthew 19, 28. And there, it's not actually talking about our, our individual regeneration. It's talking about what God is going to do to the entire universe when Jesus returns. He's going to regenerate the, the universe and give the universe a, a new birth. And then in Titus 3, 5, the word is used to talk about our individual rebirth, our individual uh, regeneration as Christians. There Paul says that God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So re regeneration is talked about as washing and renewal there. But then that's, that's not the only way that the Bible talks about regeneration. It talks about regeneration in a lot of ways in Scripture. It really, it's a kind of central focal point of the Bible regeneration is. It's one of the main teachings of Scripture from the Old Testament into the New Testament. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, regeneration is talked about as a circumcision of the heart. You see that in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Romans 2, Colossians 2. And Ezekiel 36, 26 is talked about as, as being given a new heart and a new spirit. Jeremiah 31, 33 talks about the new birth as, as uh, having God's law written upon your heart. Uh, Ezekiel 37, is it describes the new birth as nothing less than resurrection, spiritual resurrection life being given to a human being. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, about regeneration is our being made alive, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him. We were raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul describes the regenerated person as being a new creation. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 1.4 describes it as someone becoming a partaker of the divine nature. I love that one. The Apostle John in 1 John describes it again and again as the regenerated person, as being someone who's been born of God. And, and there are many other ways that the, that the Bible talks about it. Acts talks about it as receiving the Spirit. And, and, and uh, Romans 8 talks about it as being indwelled by the Spirit. And there are a number of ways that the Bible talks about the new birth, about regeneration. 
But what it all kind of boils down to is that regeneration is a real and substantial transformation of the individual through God's presence within. It is a total renovation of the heart, a total renovation of the entire human being by God's presence. Forget about all this new year, new you stuff. The only way to have a new you is to be born again. To be born again, it's the only real, lasting, substantial, comprehensive change that we can experience as broken and sinful humanity. It alone will change the heart of a human being. It alone will change us from loving sin to hating sin. It alone will change us from hating righteousness to loving righteousness, from hating God and one another to loving God and one another. It alone will change us from not caring a lick about pleasing and glorifying God to becoming people who genuinely want to please and glorify God. It is a change from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive by the vivifying presence of God. That's the rebirth. And so part of what we need to understand here is that there's an urgent necessity in us for this. We need this. It's urgent that we experience this. If you're not born again, you're dead in trespasses and sins. You're following the prince of the power of the air on the path to hell. You need to be born again. John said, or Jesus says in John 3, 3 and 5, truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Unless one is born of water in the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That word cannot ought to leap off the page to us with a sense of urgency. It speaks to the total impossibility of entering into God's sphere of salvation apart from this miraculous work in the heart. Listen to me, it, it does not matter how long you have attended church, how much you give, how many Bible facts you have memorized, whether you can speak the Christianese language or whatever else. If you are not born again, you are lost. You are spiritually dead. You are burning. You are a spiritual zombie and you cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again, as Jesus says in John 3, 7. It's an urgent necessity. But then what's more is that it's an act of utter sovereignty. It's, it's an urgent necessity, but if, if it's up to you, you're doomed. We need God to do this and that's why he's the one who does it. It's an act of utter sovereignty. He's the one who affects regeneration. That's why still here in John 3, 8, Jesus says the wind blows where it wishes. He's using an analogy here to say, to say that the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration is like the blowing of the wind. The point being that, that, that you can't control the blowing of the wind. I remember Amy and I going on a, on a hike in Cincinnati one time and, and we, we just sat there in awe for a few minutes and watched the wind blow in no discernible pattern. It blew throughout the trees and it was going in circles and it was winding in and throughout these trees. It wasn't blowing one way or the other and we couldn't trace it. We couldn't figure it out. We couldn't control it. We couldn't guide it. We couldn't figure out which way it was blowing. It's completely autonomous and uncontrollable. You can't stop it. You can't steer it. It's directed solely by the will of God. So it is with the new birth. That's why Jesus, or John, the Apostle John says in 1 John, or in John 1.13 rather, that all those who are born again are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's what we say with the, with the, the great uh, 
pastor theologian St. Augustine, God, command what you will, but grant what you command. You command us to be born again, but grant it, Lord, please. You know, it's no coincidence that the Bible uses the analogy of birth to talk about this. You didn't will to be born. You didn't will your first birth. You didn't cooperate with your mother to try to conceive and birth yourself. Tell her that you did and see how that goes. You weren't able to do this yourself. It had to be an act of another entirely. And, and so it is with the second birth. We have as much to do with our second birth as we do our first. It's God's will alone that can affect regeneration. We see this illustrated for us in John's gospel while we're there. In John chapter 11, a friend of Jesus's, a, a man named Lazarus, he dies. And at first he's just ill and death seems imminent. And so Jesus's friends call him. They say, come, Lazarus is sick. We need you to come heal him. But Jesus waits. He's got his own plans. And so he waits. And eventually Lazarus does die. And only after Lazarus dies does Jesus show up. And when Jesus shows up, Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, they come to Jesus. They ask why he didn't come sooner. They assume that it's just too late. But Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Death ain't got nothing on me. And so he goes to Lazarus' tomb and he orders the stone to be rolled away. It's like someone going to a closed casket funeral and saying, hey, let's open up that casket I'm going to raise this guy up. That's what Jesus does. And they give him fair warning and say, listen, he's been dead a few days. It's probably not going to smell very good. But Jesus insists. He says, open up the tomb and, 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 and I, I, I'm going to raise this man up. And Lazarus is dead. He can't hear Jesus. He's not cooperating with Jesus. He's not exercising faith in the word of Jesus in his heart. He's not believing Jesus for his own resurrection. He can't believe Jesus. He can't hear Jesus. He can't obey Jesus. And yet Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And somehow, some way, guess who comes out? Lazarus comes out. He hears Jesus and he comes out. It says John eleven forty four that Lazarus came out. Lazarus is miraculously, supernaturally raised up by the sovereign word of Christ. That's a picture of the effectual call and regeneration of God. We who were dead in trespasses and sins, God made alive in and through and by and with Christ Jesus so that we would now be able to place our faith and trust in him alone. Cadavers don't dance, but thanks be to God, Jesus grants cadavers resurrection life within their souls and raises them up so that they would be made new, so that they would be raised up and follow him as his very own. That's the effectual call. That's regeneration. And now before we close, let's look at, at a, a few brief points of application here. A few brief points of application. First, we need to beware of counterfeits of the new birth. We need to beware of counterfeits of the new birth. I say this because there might not be a more misunderstood and abused doctrine among those claiming to be Christians in America. And recently, the, the State of Theology survey by, by Ligonier showed that 30% of those who claim to be born again of Christians in America that claim to be born again, believe that Jesus is a great teacher, but not God. They don't even believe one of the most basic tenets of the Christian faith. And that's just one horrendous finding among many in that survey. And, and, and that's, you know, more and more, you'll see this in Pew Research and Barna Survey and in others, those claim to be born again in America are more and more reflecting this world rather than the kingdom of God. And the reason 
has to do with the fact that we cannot distinguish between counterfeits and the real thing when it comes to the new birth. And understand, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying, we're not all knowing as Christians, I'm not saying that we can exercise psychological certainty about the, the new birth of another person. I'm not saying that, but, but there are real and true signs of the new birth, and there are real and evident counterfeits which we must learn to recognize in ourselves and in others. Some of us carry on in life assuming our salvation because we prayed a prayer once. Some of us carry on in life assuming our salvation because we grew up in a Christian household. This new birth does not come by the will of the flesh or the will of blood. It does not happen by being born into a Christian family. We may carry on in the Christian life thinking that, that, that we are born again, that we are saved because we have memorized Bible facts in Awana and won some awards, because we attend church and vote Republican, or because we're basically moral, or, or whatever else, or any other external conformity that we associate with Christianity. We assume our salvation, not recognizing that we're basing these assumptions upon counterfeits of the new birth. None of that makes a Christian. The new birth and the new birth alone makes a Christian. You must be born again, Jesus said. And if you are born again, if you're not born again, rather, I don't care how you vote or where you grew up or how moral you are when you prayed a prayer or walked an aisle or whatever else, you're dead in trespasses and sins. And you need the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ to take up residence in your soul. And if you have experienced a new birth, there will be genuine signs and fruit that comes from it. Jesus said you will recognize them by their fruits. If you've been born again, you will love the lost and want to see them saved. If you're born again, you will be socially compassionate for the least of these. If you're born again, you will desire and hunger after God's word. If you are born again, you will love your fellow Christians in your local church and seek to serve them. If you're born again, you will increasingly have a distaste for sin and wickedness and increasingly crave and hunger after righteousness. You will experience conviction of sin and confess it to God. You will pray and persevere in praying. You will love and serve Jesus Christ. You will grow in obedience to him. These and more, they're true signs and fruits of the new birth of that supernatural work of God in the soul of a human being. These are fruits and signs. It can't be manufactured by the sinner's prayer or, or any other external conformity or any other counterfeit. So maybe this morning as you hear this, you're, you're, you might be thinking, well, those signs, those fruits, that doesn't describe me at all. I was basing my salvation on those assumptions, those counterfeits. And I would just say, good, maybe God is dealing with you right now, maybe God is giving you an ember in your soul, in your heart, and blowing upon it. So I'd encourage you to follow that, to explore it. I'd more than encourage you. This is, this is urgent. This is an urgent necessity. I would strongly urge you. You need to do business with God. You need to go to him. You need to wrestle with him. Like Jacob wrestled with him in the night. You need to, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. As, as Paul said, you need to grab hold of Christ's garment like the woman with the blood issue and not let go 
until he blesses you. You must be born again. And second, I would say this to, to those of you who are maybe especially sensitive and prone to be overly introspective. And that's be, beware of expecting too much from the new birth. I know that kind of sounds bad. I was hoping that it might get your attention a little bit, but beware of expecting too much. We can fall into one of two dangers here. We can either expect far too little as a result of the new birth, or we can expect far too much. Both are dangerous paths that will either wreck your assurance or lead you to falsely assume your salvation. Some of us assume our salvation and expect far too little change from the new birth. Some of us settle for counterfeits of the new birth, as we've already looked at. And so the, the, the previous point was, was more for you. But some of us expect too much as a result of the new birth. The new birth, regeneration, is not glorification. It's not a complete and, 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 and total break with this former life. Some of, some of us expect the new birth, that it's supposed to result in our being freed from any and all desire to sin. Or that it'll, make, that it'll make obedience in the Christian life easy. But you see, even after we experience a new birth, we still have the old nature, our old human nature with us. We've been given a new nature, but we carry around this old nature with us. Like a dark passenger, it hangs on, tempting us, calling us, luring us into sin and temptation to God. You'll, you'll, you'll never be entirely free from this temptation and these kinds of desires on this side of glory. So the Apostle Paul says in 1 John 1, 9, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Born again believers still face temptation, still sin. Perfection is not a sign of the new birth. In fact, easy obedience is not a sign of the new birth. Don't be deceived. Far too many of us have, have bought into the lie that the Christian life is supposed to be easy. We're expecting too much. We expect that, that there's no fight, no battle, no war. But if you believe that, you're setting yourself, you're setting yourself up for failure from the get-go. You have to fight in the Christian life. You have, you have to fight and war against sin. When temptation comes up, you must preach the truth of God's word to yourself. You must memorize scripture so that you have truths to speak to yourself in those moments. You must stand alongside other fellow warriors in the church to help you fight and battle against sin and hold you accountable. When you fail and lose the battle in those moments, you must confess sin to God and go forward with Christ to fight another day. You see, because the new birth is not a reality that makes the fight unnecessary. The new birth is the reality that makes the fight possible. Let me say that again. The new birth is not a reality that makes the fight unnecessary. The new birth is the reality that makes the fight possible. And so don't misunderstand. If you're discouraged by the reality that you have to continually fight against sin and temptation in your life, that's not a sign that you're not reborn. It's a sign that you are reborn, that you're fighting. So be encouraged and keep fighting, keep following, keep praying, keep studying, keep gathering, keep going. Don't stop. Next, moving on from, from more inward application, more outward application. This doctrine should lead us to evangelize liberally and expectantly. Remember the doctrine of the general call. The general call, that's our work. 
That's our work. We're commanded and called to give to any and all the free call of the gospel. We're required to do so. We should do so liberally. And yet as we do so, we can rest and remain confident in this. Through our witness, God will effectually call and regenerate all those whom he has chosen. You know, I love the parable of the, the, the sower in Mark 4. There the gospel is pictured as seed and the Christian as a, a sower of seeds. And when you, what you see with this sower is really interesting. He's just throwing seed everywhere. He, he's just completely undiscerning as to what constitutes good soil. Just throwing seed everywhere. He's throwing seed on the beaten down path, on the rocky soil, on the thorny soil. He's just throwing seed everywhere with no discernment whatsoever. And we're called to throw out the general call of the gospel in that very way. And yet, here's, here's part of the promise in Mark 4. Some seed is going to fall on good soil. We should expect that. That the general call will sometimes bring about an effectual call through which God brings about the fruit of regeneration. And so don't be prejudiced in your evangelism. No one, spiritually speaking, is a likely candidate for the new birth. All are spiritually dead, but we worship and serve a God who raises the dead, and that should make us liberal and expectant evangelists. But then also along with that, we, we ought to evangelize humbly and prayerfully. Humbly and prayerfully. Know that no matter how competent you are, how smart you are, how gifted you are, how clever you are, how compelling you are, you cannot raise the dead in your own power. That takes a sovereign and miraculous work of God. And that should, that should drive us to our knees in prayer for those that we seek to evangelize. If God is the one who effectually calls and affects regeneration, if it is an act of God's sovereign grace, then oh, we ought to be driven to our knees in prayer that he would save, that he would effectually call, that he would raise the dead through our witness. Let me ask you, parents, are you praying for the salvation of your children? If your spouse is not born again, are you praying for the salvation of your spouse? Or the same question for, for your parents, for your siblings, or your whoever it is, your neighbor, your coworkers. If not, why not? As, as, as uh, Penn Jillette once said, how much do you have to hate someone to believe that eternal life is possible and to not tell someone about it, not pray for them? And of course, if God were not the one who sovereignly calls and affects regeneration, then there'd be no reason to pray for the conversion of our loved ones. But if he is, what a reason to pray and ask for his sovereign grace to make our loved ones alive by his spirit. If we trust in Jesus Christ, that's what God has done for us. He has effectually called us and regenerated us. And he's done that for a purpose so that we might go out and be instruments and tools in his sovereign hand through which he does that for others. And friends, by his sovereign grace, God calls and regenerates his people. And he wants to do that through us for others. And so we ought to recognize the urgent necessity of this work in our souls and in the souls of those that we love. But to beware the counterfeits for our sake and for the sake of those that we love and serve. We have to evangelize liberally, expectantly, humbly, prayerfully. This is our call. May God open our hearts to pay attention to his word. Let's pray to that end. Father, we give you thanks for the clarity of your word.
when it comes to the effectual call and regenerating work of your spirit. We pray that that would take place in the lives of all those here this morning who do not trust in you, who do not know you. And we pray that you would use all who are present here this morning who do trust you and do know you to be instruments in your hand through which you accomplish it in the lives of others. We pray these things knowing that your word never goes forth void. That your word accomplishes the very purpose for which you sent it. And so we pray that that would take place this morning. Open our hearts to understand. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.